This episode of Industry Focus is supported by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, September 16th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and on today's financial show, we'll take a look at a recent report that seems to be good news for fintech startups, maybe not such good news for big banks. We'll continue the conversation from last week on our new real estate service here at The Motley Fool, Million Acres. Uh, we'll hit on some listener emails and tweets from our What Was the Last Stock You Bought segment last week. As always, we'll have ones to watch for you. And joining me in the studio via the magic of Skype, as always, Mr. Matt Frankel, certified financial planner and proud owner of a couple of dogs. We're sitting there watching them right now in the Skype video, just chilling out, lounging. I think they put you at ease, Matt. They do. The The big one, especially, is always my, my kind of work companion. He's if, for those who aren't watching video, he's a 95-pound German Shepherd pit bull mix. <laughs> uh, but he's the gentle giant and just kind of sits next to me all day while I'm working. The, the little one over my shoulder is is a handful. <laughs> we have a little one, too. We have three dogs, two fairly big ones, and one little one. And, yeah, I mean, it seems like the little one is, is the handful of the bunch. But, uh, you know, hey, there's only, only, only so much you can complain about when you have a house full of dogs, right? Exactly. Hey, hey, two dogs, two kids. I got a nice full house here. <laughs> Life is treating you well. <laughs> um, well, let's jump in. First thing uh, we wanted to get to this week, we, you know, this is something we were reading this morning, actually, a, a report out from Accenture recently um, talking about this massive uh, land grab out there in the form of $280 billion in banking payments revenues. Uh, they're talking about startups in the fintech world uh, slated to grab much of that money by 2025, um, whereas the big banks are going to be suffering from perhaps a little complacency, uh, perhaps a little bit of a failure to fully adopt uh, technology into their business models. But but this really, there's a lot to unpack here with this story. Um, I mean, this is something where it's seemingly good for payments companies. You wonder, can the banks pivot? Uh, there's a theme in here talking about essentially the payment space. You're getting to this point, it, you know, at some point years from now, where payments are essentially free. If that's the case, what does that mean for some of these fintech startups like uh, Square and PayPal and whatnot? Uh, so, Matt, let's just let's kick it off here uh, first and foremost by talking about this opportunity that's coming up for these startups versus the big banks. What were a couple of your key takeaways after reading the report? Well, one thing to point out, um, even though, yes, the report says banks are going to lose up to $280 billion in payments revenue per year by 2025, you have to remember that doesn't necessarily mean that these fintechs like Square, PayPal are going to gain $280 billion. We're talking right. about a trend toward lower payments and things like that. So maybe, you know, um, you know, the, the fintechs will get $50 billion of revenue and the banks will lose out on $280 billion because the payments companies are doing it cheaper. Yeah, so, we've been talking about that a lot, to be fair. I mean, this for, for the longest time, we've been talking about that is one of the advantages that your Squares and PayPals and Stripes of the world have. They're making these payments cheaper than they've historically been. 
Right. So we're not exactly saying that Square and PayPal are going to have $280 billion of revenue, although that would certainly be very nice. <laughs> hey, I wouldn't complain. <laughs> right. But um, no, it's definitely a net positive. And the global payments business is expected to swell to about $2 trillion by that point. So this is about 15% of the total. It's, we're not saying the big banks are going to be bankrupt or you know, American Express is going to go out of business because of disruptive payment technology. Um, and the other kind of big thing is, yes, payments are trending toward free. They're never actually going to get to free. Um, right. Yeah. So even the payment methods that people think are free, like say Bitcoin today, really cost a decent amount of money. It's usually cheaper than using a credit card or sending an international wire transfer or something like that. But these aren't exactly free. And it's not just the payments revenue that these payment companies are getting. Um, I mean, we've discussed a few times that Square really makes nothing off of its off the transfers on its cash app. Um, it's the other things that it could do with this stream of business and customer base, yeah. uh, which we're about. We'll talk about one of them in a minute. You know, a little teaser there. <laughs> but there's there's a lot of big implications for these fintech companies beyond just payments revenue itself. Yeah, and I think one of the things I was looking at, um, because like you, I mean, I'm, you're thinking about this statement of payments getting too free. Um, I mean that that I mean they're never going to be truly free, right? I mean you're trying to whittle those costs down as much as you can, um, but there is a cost of doing business always. And I mean for our purposes here as investors in in this lifetime. Um, I mean, I think you look at some of these businesses like Square and PayPal, it really shows you the importance of what they're building beyond just being some type of company that gets a scrape off of payments transactions. I mean, it's the importance of, of these businesses building out attractive two-sided networks where it focuses on buyers and sellers, but also more diversified business models. I mean, Square today, yeah, I mean, the, the lion's share of its, of its revenue comes from transaction fees. But I mean, you're talking about a business here with a transaction side of the business, subscriptions and services side of the business. You've got Square Capital. Um, I mean, you've got a lot of different ways they can go. They're building out software ecosystems to help businesses run their businesses. So, I mean, whether you're in retail or you're in restaurants, I mean, these companies are building out technology platforms to help these businesses run their everyday operations. So, it extends well beyond just transactions and these lower and lower cost payments. Right. And every time you hear lower and lower cost payments, that's a very good thing to keep in mind because I mean, at the end of the day, Square and PayPal are not non not for profit corporations. I mean, they're they're in business to make money. Pay, payments aren't going to be free. They might find more efficient, cost effective ways to do it, which they're already kind of doing. But, yeah. and it's not just the cost; it's the efficiency of the whole process. Um, I mean, how long does it take right now to send a wire transfer to somewhere in the middle of Africa? You know, it's interesting you say that because when I worked at Bank of America back in the day, this was like 2001, 2002, and I, I was a loan officer there, and so a lot of what I did um, was based around you know getting getting money from one account to the other. I mean, there were a lot of wire transfers that I had to had to be a part of. I had to initiate or take care of wire transfers, 
And I mean, you want to talk about a convoluted, slow, and expensive process. I mean, back then, that was it, too. And I mean, to make like one wire transfer, in many cases, would cost $40, $50, $60, unless you had some extensive relationship with the bank. And then they would give you, you know, a wire transfer for free or whatever. But I mean, it was regardless of the amount, whether you were moving $100 or $100,000. I mean, it it seemed to be a very cumbersome and slow and expensive process and certainly that has changed but we also see the fed now working on revamping the automated clearinghouse system to be able to provide more instant transfers not only here domestically but around the world and the big banks not very happy about that because that's taken away from some of their business and their ability to charge those fees. Smaller banks thinking, hey, we kind of like that. It helps us remain competitive in an environment where big banks seem to always have the upper hand. Um, I mean, yeah, when you talk about money moving around the world, it's it's well beyond just swiping a card and payments, uh, you know, pay, payment fees. Right. There's a lot of disruption going on in the payment space, and it's not all just having to do with fees. Um, Kind of pivoting to the other thing I wanted to talk about here, um, the cryptocurrencies and how we talked a little bit the other week about uh, Facebook's Libra and how it, yeah, what like, I don't want to say like a what's the point discussion, but it was, <laughs> it, it, it kind of led to that. Um, and this news made me, made me want to ask you that question. How do you feel when you read something like this? How does this make you feel about Facebook Libra? Well, it's, I'm not just, it, I, I'd actually, say it more in terms of the broader cryptocurrency space. Um, Payments companies are developing ways to pretty much do everything that cryptocurrencies do with U.S. dollars. um, I mean, cryptocurrencies have the advantage now of, I mean, the original reason they were created is to make transactions cheaper, faster, and more private. They they still have the privacy advantage to some degree, although they're losing that somewhat as, as things get more and more regulated. Um, but it, it, even Libra, which is denominated in U.S. dollars, it's really tough to make to see the use case. I mean, there are people working at Facebook um, who are smarter than I am, so maybe they see something that I don't. Um, maybe. So, but maybe they see something I'm we're, we're missing. But I really don't see how. If just think of how much the payment space, like Square, PayPal, and all, even the big, the technology from the big banks, uh, like Zelle, have evolved in the past, you know, three or four years alone. It's really tough to fast forward another three or four years, and don't see payment technology being as functional as cryptocurrencies. Well, and I wonder, but I mean, that you know, one of the first questions that came to my mind in reading this, uh, reading about this report was. You know, again, I mean, I you know, I think I've been very clear. I'm not very. I'm a skeptic when it comes to Facebook Libra. I don't quite understand really the ultimate point behind it because while they while their stated goal is to bring more financial services to the under and the unbanked of the world to make the cost of doing business uh, go down, to make banking generally speaking more transparent, more understandable, more available to the masses. I mean, that is what is going on right now with all of these companies in this space. I mean, that's what these fintech companies that have been in this space for the last five, 10 plus years, that's what they've been doing. And so I don't understand exactly why, you know, this Facebook Libra initiative is 
going to be any better. I mean, it, it, frankly, to me, it seems like they've got a heck of a lot more work to do because they're so far behind what a lot of these companies are, have been doing already. And just because you say cryptocurrency, that, and it doesn't make it better. I mean, it just you know, it just doesn't. Right. And I mean, I I kind of get some of what they're saying. They want an easy way, especially in other in less. In parts of the in parts of the world where there's less access to financial services, they want to make it easier for people to transact. But you know, who's, who's to prevent Square Cash or Venmo from doing that? Of course. So, I, I like I said, I'm not seeing the use case for Libra right now. It seems like a whole lot of money that Facebook's investing to build this out, and a whole lot of legal headaches they're willing to go through. And I'm really not sure why at this point. Yeah. What about you know we were talking about Square for a minute. We talk about a number of the different ways Square makes money. You had been looking into uh, something that Square is dipping its toe into here that could have, uh, I mean, a, a profound impact on the business over time if they're successful. And it's it's more along the lines of the kind of stuff that we're doing here every day, isn't it? Right. Well, um, we got a there was I saw a report uh, last week, uh, I think Friday, about Square is testing on a small scale uh, stock trading capability in the cash app. Um, kind of a similar, pl- think of like a similar platform to Robinhood. Uh, right. free, where it's free stock trading, simple platform. So it's it's designed to compete with like a Robinhood type thing. This is not a direct competitor to things like, you know, E-Trade, TD Ameritrade. It's that different clientele. Yeah. These are people who don't really necessarily want a research report on the stock they're buying. They just, you know, want to dip their toes into the stock market a little bit. So Square has a couple advantages. I mean, well, one they have a the Cash App has what 15 million active users right now. Yeah. Um, just to put that in perspective, Robinhood has six million users. And Robin wow. and Robinhood all by itself as a standalone platform is got a valuation of almost eight billion dollars in July in a private yeah, funding Yeah, but run. that doesn't necessarily make it right. I mean, let's look at WeWork was a good example there of the the, the danger of the private market valuation, right? Fair enough. But having, <laughs> having said that, you got to figure a platform with 6 million users that pretty much gives its service away for free, Robinhood has some ways of making money, um, is valued at almost $8 billion, and Square has two and a half times the user base already that it could market these this stock platform too. And if I don't know if you've used Square's Bitcoin trading platform, I did it just to see how it worked with you know a tiny amount of money. But it's a very easy, user-friendly platform. And if they can translate that into the investing world and make something that's really easy for you know the average American to buy their first stock, there's a lot of potential to market this, especially because now this is like the first time you could you'll be able to link, you know, your bank account, um, your investments and a peer-to-peer payment payment platform together, it's kind of another step on to, on Square's journey toward being the one-stop financial shop. And I don't know of any other thing that links those three. I don't think Robinhood has a does Robinhood have a peer-to-peer payment app at the moment. I no, I don't believe it does. I think Robinhood is you know they they tried to what dabble in the checking and savings uh, area and quickly found they were in over their heads. I mean, I think you know that's that's to your point there. Um, in regard to size, I mean, not only does Square have the bigger user platform, but ostensibly far more resources. Um, I, I would think probably a greater team of of people that can come up with generally 
better ideas, probably you know more innovation in an environment like that. Um, so yeah, I mean when you you know it, it you look at a company like Square or Stripe or PayPal. I mean all of these companies are doing the same kind of thing, and essentially it just seems to me like they're building the banks of the 21st century. I mean they're building they're building the financial services companies of the 21st century. What used to be very much just a a few big players in a space in the form of big banks that really pulled all of the strings. Technology has changed that in a lot of ways, and and banking has evolved far beyond just banking. I mean, it's it's financial services, and you're seeing a lot of these a lot of these uh, you know nimble these smaller, more nimble companies uh, really making those early investments and trying those new things. You know, they're not all going to work out. Some will work, some won't. But but I mean, this is the time you got to try those things because. You've got big customer bases in in a lot of different ways, uh, you know, to get things done now. Yeah, definitely. And um, we also saw another encouraging thing that um, Square is reportedly buying a uh, company called Third Party Trade that pretty much would build it. They build out the backend functionality for trading platforms. Yeah. So it's it's looking like this is going to happen sooner sooner rather than later. Um, and it could be a great way, like I said, to monetize those Cash App users in a way that even like Venmo isn't isn't really doing. Um, so, I'm, I'm excited to see where this goes. I, I'm still a big Square fan, as everybody here yeah. knows. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I love them all. I mean, I own PayPal, I own Square, I have MasterCard and Visa. I feel like, uh, you know, there's room for all of those businesses to continue doing well here in the coming years. And, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a fast-changing space. Um, you, you just want to be there with the companies that are uh, shaking things up, the companies that are implementing those changes as opposed to the companies that are responding to the changes. And I guess we'll we'll leave it at that. Uh, Matt, we wanted to follow up from last week's conversation. You introduced our listeners uh, to something you've been working on here for quite some time now with the team, Million Acres. It's Motley Fool's real estate um, investment service. And a lot of cool things going on there. But now you've got this thing out there. People are reading the content, learning about what we have to offer. Talk to us a little bit more about Million Acres, and maybe discuss you know some of the different ways you and the team at at Million Acres view investing in real estate. Sure. Well, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you've heard me talk about REITs, real estate investment trusts, quite a bit. There's a lot more to investing in real estate than just REITs. Although on Million Acres, we do kind of give you a whole lot of in-depth coverage on that as well. Um, we also go into a lot of other ways you can invest in real estate and some other strategies you can use, like um, investing in properties. Um, I own a handful of investment properties myself. Um, so we kind of go over things like how to finance an investment property, which a lot of people don't know how to do, um, what a property manager would do for you, do you need one, um, the, the advantages and disadvantages of choosing that as opposed to something like a real estate investment trust. Um, like you're put, kind of putting all your eggs in one basket as opposed to a company that invests in thousands of properties. Um, but on the other hand, there's potential for a lot of great long-term returns if you have the, the patience to, to deal with all those things. Um, we also go into some a relatively new way of investing in real estate called crowdfunding. Um, you've probably heard of crowdfunding platforms like GoFundMe or something like that. Oh, sure. Yeah, to where people raise money for you know medical bills, things, whatever they need. Um, well, there, it's, this is also kind of emerged as a way to invest. Um, and crowdfunding lets people get in on real estate deals that they otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to do or wouldn't know how to do. Um, for example, if some if an experienced real estate developer wants to buy a hotel 
renovate it and try to increase its income, it might put up a little bit of the project's money itself and then advertise the rest to investors like you and me, where you can get a piece of the project in exchange for an equity interest. Um, so that's a really exciting way to invest, but you, there's a lot you really need to know before you jump into one of those um, in terms of risks, what to expect, um, how to analyze the deals as, as you're reading them. So a lot of really interesting ways to invest in real estate. And there's also a lot of big tax implications of real estate investing. There's a lot of advantages that come with real estate investing when it comes to taxes, but it really is kind of complicated. You need to understand it. And there are some tax strategies that you can use to prevent from seeing your tax bills go up after becoming a real estate owner, an investment property owner, or even a real estate investment trust or crowdfunding investor. Um, a lot of people don't realize, for example, that uh, REIT dividends are a lot more complex than the ones you get from the average stock. Um, yes. Yeah, they're usually broken down into several components um, and are not usually taxed as qualified dividends. There's, you know, so there's a, there's a whole lot to really unpack when it comes to real estate investing, which is what we're trying to do over there at Million Acres. So I encourage anyone listening who's interested in real estate or even if you're not, I mean, come come over there and see why you should be. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. I tell you, I mean, everything you've been doing on it, um, it just really looks cool. I mean, having the opportunity, you know, I, I've worked with Matty Arger Singer for many, many years now, um, and we served uh, three years together on Million Dollar Portfolio. To see him uh, be able to go into this real estate service, I mean, real estate's always been a real passion of his, and I know it's one of yours as well. Um, and and so, you know, when you put passionate people on something. Uh, I mean, you can't help but get good results because you just you're happy doing what you're doing. Uh, so yeah, make sure listeners you can go check out millionacres.com to learn more about what Matt was uh, talking about there. And hey, you know, hey, give them a follow on Twitter too. They're on Twitter. They're tweeting out all sorts of great tips and ideas and and things to make you smarter and happier about investing in real estate. You can get them at Twitter at millionacres underscore co. And thanks again to NetSuite for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. You know, if you don't know your numbers, Matt, you don't know your business. We talk about numbers all the time here. Any business worth its salt, that management team is going to know the numbers. But the problem growing businesses have, and that keeps them from knowing their numbers, is this hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It is one big, inefficient mess. It takes up too much time, too many resources, and that hurts the bottom line. So, introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. This gives you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches. Man, I don't think any headaches are needed, right? I mean, headaches just are, we can agree, right? Nobody needs them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Helps you avoid those unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide. Seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash fool. That's netsuite.com slash fool to download your free guide. Seven key strategies to grow your profits. That's netsuite.com slash fool.
All right, Matt. Last week we uh, introduced a new segment to the show. We were just, you know, giving it a test drive to see how people felt about it. It was what was the last stock you bought and why. Um, you know, it's not something that you and I can do every week because we're not buying stocks every week. But we figured every once in a while we'd probably throw it in there, and we got some good feedback. We had a lot of people that uh, said they liked it; they thought it was really cool. We got some responses from listeners, both via email and Twitter. Uh, thought we'd read a couple of those off for you. We have an email from Marianne Ford in New York City. Marianne says, "I bought Twilio and the Trade Desk today. Yikes!" They each dropped by about 10% today for no discernible reason, so I took this opportunity to pare down my too-large position in NVIDIA, glad I could sell it at a solid 15% gain, and use that cash to add to my Twilio and Trade Desk positions. I'd been wanting to do this for a while, but I didn't have the Do-Re-Mi. But since NVIDIA came out of the red recently to give me a small but respectable return, I trimmed shares there to buy these. I'm slowly moving large-cap companies like Apple out of my Roth or IRA so I can move growth stocks with the potential to make a whole lot more for me tax-free in. Trying to create a portfolio that consistently outperforms the market, while also holding a few potential multi-baggers and moonshots in my Roth, hoping they'll help me make up for having gotten started investing much later than I ever hoped to. Fool on peeps, MFK and NYC. Congratulations, Marianne. And, you know, I really like that last part you said there about Having gotten started investing later than you really had ever hoped to, but you still had some some ways to try to deal with that. Um, and hey, listen, I own the trade desk too, so congratulations there. I think that's that's a company that still has a uh, a lot of opportunity in front. And also on Twitter, Daniel Trindade hit us up, and he said the last stock I bought was Roku, as it has only positive news. Smart soundbar, growth prospects, etc., and has been knocked almost 20% from its all time highs. Took a chance to add to my position. Well, congratulations, Daniel. There are a lot of folks here that really like Roku and what it's doing. I think your chances are pretty good there. You might be hanging on to a winner as well. Uh, hey, so, you know, listen, what's the last stock you bought and why? Reach out to us at email here. We got industryfocus at fool.com or hit us up on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. Tell us about the last stock you bought and why. We'd love to tell everybody else listening exactly what you told us. All right, Matt, last segment for the day, talking one to watch here as always. What is your stock? For our listeners to watch this week. Well, continuing our real estate and million acres theme, I am going to recommend another REIT, but this one's a really cool and unique one. It's called MGM Growth Properties, ticker symbol MGP. And this is the company that owns a lot of the, the casinos that bear the MGM brand name. Um, anyone in the DC area knows the MGM National Harbor, um, which is right near where Jason is right now. I don't, know, right. I don't know if you've been to that one, but it's a pretty impressive property. I think uh, The Fool actually had an event there not too long ago. Um, huh. And uh, they own uh, the Borgata in Atlantic City, which is where I had my 21st birthday way back in the day. <laughs> um, they own uh, seven of the MGM casinos in Vegas. Um, I love this it, as a play on the legalization of gambling that's spreading throughout the country. Uh, the, yeah. the stock yields a little over 6% right now, so it's a great dividend stock. It's got, like I said, irreplaceable assets, which is one thing I really look for when I'm looking for a real estate investment. Uh, it's got a natural acquisition pipeline as MGM builds more casinos. They sell them to their own, the real estate investment trust that bears their name. 
Um, they have a bunch of advantages. They have, they can see the unit level financials of their tenants, which is very unique in real estate. Uh, they've been able to grow their dividend really impressively in their short history they, since they became a public company. And I just really love this as a great dividend play to hold for the long run. Okay, nice. Well, I guess I'm a little bit um, in line with you, I suppose. Um, stock that was on my radar for last week's Motley Fool Money, I'm putting it um, as my one to watch this week as well, is Churchill Downs, ticker CHDN. Uh, the Kentucky Derby, Matt, I don't know if you knew this, the Kentucky Derby is the longest continuously held annual sporting event in the United States. Um, now, with that said, Churchill Downs is far more than just the Kentucky Derby Company. It actually operates casinos and other tracks and online gambling sites, including Twin Spires, which is the largest legal online horse racing platform in the U.S. And so, of the three major revenue buckets in racing and online wagering and casinos, right now it's casinos that are big, the big money maker for for the company. But all three play a nice, important role. Um, and as you mentioned, you know we continue to see this regulatory landscape evolve in the U.S. Um, as, as gambling becomes legal in more places. I think Churchill Downs certainly could be in a very good position to benefit from that, given their experience in the space. Uh, so one I have been digging into, and you know I'm liking what I'm seeing. So there you go. Uh, Matt, that's going to do it for us for this week. Uh, it's great catching up with you as always. And hey, man, looking forward to actually seeing you face to face here next Monday, right? Yeah, we'll be flying up there next Sunday, and we'll be spending a couple of days up in around headquarters. All right, man. We'll save travels, and we'll grab a beer when you get here. All right. All right. Sounds good. All right. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Dan Boyd. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.